G'day, welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, we are the online and social media home for workouts, special situations and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the Director and Fund Manager here at Hermes Capital and I'm your Lunch Money host. Uh, so a very warm welcome to you. Um, our humble podcast comes to you from uh, Waterloo, which is in the uh, south of Sydney. Um, these days, Waterloo is a mess of apartment blocks uh, up and down Botany Road here, brand new apartment blocks. Uh, and that's great because building apartment blocks, that's construction and construction creates jobs. Um, but many years ago, uh, when I started in finance, uh, this area, Waterloo and South Sydney, was, uh, was, it, was, it was factories from Surrey Hills through to, uh, to where I am now, all the way to Mascot and beyond. Um, and all those factories, uh, well, as, as uh, someone selling finance uh, in my time, you needed to know uh, the language of the rag trade or schmutters, as some of my clients used to call it. You needed to know the difference between a blow molder and an injection molder in the plastics industry. Uh, you needed to know all about pre-press when it came to the printing sector. Uh, and you needed to know about the economics of uh, uh, buying a new CNC machining machine, uh, machine uh, for your manufacturing client that was making components uh, and you know you'd be able to do the calculations on how uh, this new machine was going to, to pay for itself um, and like I say th these these manufacturing created jobs of course and it gave uh, us a certain self-sufficiency uh, that we didn't realize it would been denuded of really until COVID came along um, recently, the Prime Minister has announced a program. It's going to be a $1.5 billion uh, program called uh, the Modern Manufacturing uh, Strategy. Um, so today we're going to ask, how do we uh, grow, foster, nurture manufacturing in this country? And, uh, and how do we make sure that our manufacturers are well-funded in order to uh, take on the challenges uh, that our government seems to be setting them? So coming up, I've got David Gandolfo, who is the president of the Commercial Asset Finance Brokers Association, and Gary Tesher, who is uh, an investor and uh, consultant to the manufacturing sector. Um, just before we go any further, I'd like to remind you to uh, share, like, and to subscribe to our podcast. Um, just a reminder also that you can ask questions live, and the best question uh, wins this, the Lunch Money Mug, very exclusive and uh, limited edition. So pop us a question, we'll put it to our panel, and if you ask the best question, uh, we've got you the mug. Um, before I go to our panel, um, I'd like to uh, bring on another speaker, uh, Tony Sykes. Tony is uh, the owner of General Insurance Brokers of Australia. Uh, Tony published an article this week that caught my eye called Protect uh, Your Manufacturing Business from These Important Risks. Um, Tony couldn't join us live today, uh, but he was able to take a few minutes uh, to, to talk us through some of the points uh, in that article. Um, of particular interest, a couple of little things that he said that I, that, that I did drag out of him was uh, whether or not uh, business or COVID is an insurable event as a business, uh, business interruption, and you'll see what he says to that. Something else he said that I thought was interesting was that because the insurance companies are getting very low investment returns at the moment, uh, it makes getting cover uh, for manufacturers, uh, a lot, a lot harder. It's a lot. They're, they're tightened down a lot. Let's take a look. And here he is. G'day, Tony. Hello, Nick. How are you? Very good indeed. Listen, before we get on to the article itself, what's happening in the insurance space when it comes to manufacturing? Oh, it's a good question. So, at the moment, what we're finding with the insurers is that their their risk appetite um, is under attack. Um, so. They can only insure manufacturers who actually take their risk and their risk management 
correctly and does the right thing as far as risk management. Okay. All right. So uh, it's, it's a time when you've got to uh, be dotting your I's and crossing your T's and talking to people like yourself, no doubt. Um, yeah. I've always thought that you know, if you're buying a business, uh, a good place, or if you're buying a business or starting a business, uh, a good place to start is with an insurance broker, uh, even before uh, you do your uh your business plan and the reason I've thought that is because you guys identify insurable risks and yeah. you list insurable risks and yeah. uh, often you know I know even in my business uh, you know we, we the, the insurers identify stuff that we hadn't thought about but we're certainly very glad they told us about them here's uh, here's uh, a list of the risks that you've identified in the manufacturing space um, yeah. do any of these stand out in particular when it comes to rebooting manufacturing in Australia Oh, look, I think the main one that's there is the business interruption cover. Um, you know, we, we need to protect their, their gross profits in the event of things happening. So with manufacturing, you know, it, it can be um, um, a high-risk area. And when things do go wrong, e.g. a storm, a fire um, or malicious damage, uh, it's not just a matter of them buying a new laptop and getting up and going again. They actually need to have proper insurance to protect their loss of gross profits so they can actually get back to business again. And dare I ask, was COVID uh, an insurable risk when it came to business interruption? It was was a good, it's a really good question. Um, it was not, in my opinion, right, it was not an intended insured event under the policies. However, there were some technicalities where the Quarantine Act's uh, wording was changed and some of the policies technically um, weren't worded correctly and were providing the cover, but it's it's been tested by the Insurance Council of Australia, um, and it looks like the insurers are actually winning that fight because it's pretty obvious the intention was not there for a pandemic event to be covered under business policies, certainly under corporate travels, but not under business policies. Uh, when, when do they make that decision? When do we find out? Um, in fact, it's just being tested at the moment. So um, I, I think it's only a matter of weeks where we'll get something probably from, I think it's from the Insurance Council of Australia um, to let us know how that's going to go. So I've got a couple of uh, experts coming on very short, well, very shortly tomorrow, your time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. to talk about finance and strategy when it comes to rebooting manufacturing in Australia. Is there anything on yeah. that list, uh, anything else on that list that stands out that you think I should be putting to the boys? Absolutely. So there's a, the product and public liability insurance. Um, you know, the, your, your customers aren't going to deal with you as a manufacturer unless you can produce certificate of currencies for your public and product liability. Um, the landlord's not going to let you lease premises unless you can produce certificate currencies for your public liability. Um, and what you mentioned before about using a broker um, early in the piece is a great idea, especially in this market, because it's a limited market. You know, insurers are picking what they are insuring because they don't have the investment incomes. So therefore, they're going to make sure that their underwriting profits are, are bang on. Um, and yeah, it takes time to get quotes. Well, I can tell you, particularly when you're capital raising, uh, your potential investors may think of risks that you don't think of on your own. And uh, those risks are certainly the ones that insurers yeah. have thought of. So that's why I think those lists that you provide are really good. Listen, Tony, I really appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully uh, we can get you back as a panellist uh, when you don't have uh, international conference calls to do. <laughs> Absolute pressure, Nick. Not, nice to okay. help, buddy. Thanks a lot. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. Okay, time to introduce our panellists, and we'll start with David Gandolfo. Hey, Nick. Hey, Hello, David. How are you going? Very good. 
Excellent indeed. Thank you very much for joining us uh, again. David is a director at Quantum Business Finance, so he's a practicing broker, but he's also the president of the Commercial Asset Finance Brokers Association. Uh, what has been keeping you busy? Okay, over the last few weeks, I mean, we had the, the federal budget and uh, we had some input into some of the policies and uh, and outcomes that came out of there. So, and then uh, dealing with uh, queries uh, which have arisen from that. So that's been good, uh, and, and quite overall happy with the federal budget and what it provided. Uh, in Victoria, and, and I'm Victorian based. We have a lot of members who are Victorian based. Uh, we've been dealing. Uh, we, we are actually on a, a consultation group with the state government, and uh, there's been a lot in the media about the consultation, the, the level of consultation from the Victorian government. I've got to say. It hasn't quite been what it has been in other states, but at least we're at the table and uh, and having an interaction with the government there. Uh, and uh, the other thing which, which I'm very happy to talk about is the CAFRA Education Foundation, which had its first uh, formal meeting uh, this week. It's chaired by Terry Moody, who I know you know very well, Nick. Um, and, uh, and the CAFRA for Education Foundation is the formalisation of our uh, uh, partnership uh, with uh, lenders and other stakeholders in the industry to uh, Australianise the CLFP, which is an international qualification. That's at its first task, but uh, it will underpin all of the efforts of uh, education around commercial finance, commercial and asset finance in Australia. And uh, I know that uh, you know you've had a lot of battles that you've had to fight from time to time. Uh, uh, CAFPA's had battles, and I know that, for example, one of the areas of concern was the res responsible lending obligations, because whilst they were uh, intended for consumers, they did uh, uh, leak across into the thinking when it came to business lending. Are there any mm -hmm. other battles that you've got in front of you, or is it all, is it all uh, plain sailing at the moment? Oh. <laughs> no, it's been an interesting year, and there's certainly been plenty, uh, plenty to do. I mean, whilst there hasn't been quite as much business going on, there's been a lot in the advocacy uh, space for us to deal with. So. Uh, access to credit, uh, tightening of lending policies by lenders, uh, that sort of migration of uh, lending from the, the first tiers uh, and the broadening of the base of the second tiers or the, the appetite of the second tier lenders. Um, uh, regulation, obviously, the the, uh, the outcome there with uh, responsible lending guidelines, and we certainly had um, a role in that and we were very vocal in that space. Um, our submission, to, as I said, to uh, to budget, uh, to the federal budget and the outcomes there. We're very, very happy with the instant asset write-off, but there are some limitations on that, which we still weren't thrilled about. Uh, so uh, there's been uh, there's been no shortage of things that we've been dealing with over the course of the last 12 months or since February. All right. Well, David, we're going to uh, pop you back into the waiting room. We'll just introduce our next guest, Gary Tesher. G'day, Gary. How are you? Uh, good, Nick. How are you? Fantastic. Gary is a partner at ProMentor, and I guess I know Gary as uh, a consultant who gets involved in uh, uh, in turning businesses around, helping businesses uh, uh, move from distress to a better place. But I know that you've been an investor in uh, manufacturing businesses in the past. But tell me, uh, what, what keeps you busy these days, Gary? Uh, there's two things that keep us busy. One is the kickstarting of manufacturing. It, it seems from our experience that not a lot of people know exactly what needs to be done. Uh, certainly, we're working at the moment with the Commonwealth Government trying to figure out how to kickstart manufacturing. An interesting comment that they made when they spoke to us was they didn't think there were too many manufacturing people left and also they didn't believe that there were too many consultants left or advisors or people who've been in manufacturing in the real world in the past that can help them figure out what to do. So we're going to go through a little, a little bit of a process today as to how to do it 
or what our ideas are and how we're going to help manufacturers get back on their feet again. Uh, the other part that's kept us busy is the banks. At the moment, the banks are very uh, being really good in terms of industry in general. What they're doing is they're giving people interest, holidays, capitalising interest if they need to. Uh, in terms of principal repayments, they're giving companies holidays for principal repayments as well. And on top of that, a couple of the banks are now looking at extending that for the next 12 months, as long as the businesses show that at the end of the 12 months, they can turn themselves around and make make real money again. But the general thesis is that uh, banks don't want to see people thrown out of work or out, added to the unemployment queues. So, so do you do you think the banks are, are on a mission to, to make this softer? What what are they expecting come the new year? Are they expecting uh, you know a wall of insolvency, or are they expecting just everything to, uh, to to be kicked along and smoothed out? What what's what what are they telling you in the workout areas? In the work, yeah, in the workout areas, what they're what they're expecting is very small businesses. So one or two or three man businesses, they're expecting to fall apart. But uh, they're expecting larger businesses to somehow figure out how to get themselves out of trouble. And certainly, the banks, from what we see, will actively help them. Uh, one of the banks is setting up a little team to help advise um, SMEs, so medium sized companies, what they need to do to dig themselves out of a hole. And I haven't seen that done before not for a long time in the past and so if uh for our our insolvency practitioner viewers uh are they going to be busy early in the new year or or are they getting their hopes too high well that's a very good question actually i think if the insolvency practitioners have got very low overheads and they can do very small businesses small to medium businesses as a process they'll probably do well because they'll be small companies I think the medium to large companies, I think what banks and others will expect them to do is figure out how to restructure them. But I don't think they'll actually be putting them into receivership or anything like that. So it'll be more like an administration, restructure, come out of administration in a different format. I think that's how it's going to pan out. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, we'll bring David back. Um, and I should say I've had one question from a, uh, a, a an anonymous LinkedIn person uh, who has asked where was the mug manufactured and I'm probably ashamed to say I don't know I assume not Australia but if someone can put me onto an Australian mug manufacturer uh, I will uh, give them our next order I promise you um, okay all right well look um, now Gary you've been working on some stuff um, and I'm not sure what you can tell us and what you can't tell us why don't, why don't you tell yep. us what, you, what you've been up to in terms of the manufacturing or kickstarting manufacturing, yeah. I think I think the fundamental problem, and David alluded to that a little bit, is that handing out grants and doing a lot of tax deductions or whatever doesn't necessarily do the job. The reality is that there's more bits to the equation than that. So, for example, in a manufacturing business, certainly they're not going to spend a lot of money buying some new equipment if they can't see sales or if they can't see any advantage in it. There's just no point. They might get to... Uh, tax deduction, but if they're not paying much tax anyway, there's no upside for them as far as that's concerned. So that, that's one part of the equation. So what we're looking at is more looking at, first of all, import replacement. So say, for example, somebody makes a component, they make a component locally in Australia, circuit board or whatever, and then they import a plastic housing or a plastic part that goes around that. So what we do is look for somebody who can make that plastic housing in Australia and so, look, you guys need to work together and that way that'll generate some extra sales for the plastic housing guy and vice versa. So the idea is to 
look at areas, say industrial areas, where there's a lot of, lot of small to medium-sized manufacturers and get them to help to work together with each other. Uh, the other part of the equation, which is what we'll be doing, is sales. As I said, sales, if you haven't got sales, you're not going to spend any money on anything and you're not going to generate any employment. So the other part is we have spoken to a few of the very large retailers and they're prepared to support Australian manufacturers or import replacement as long as it's no more than 10 to 15% more expensive than what it is locally okay. uh, for the imported product, and they're prepared then to generate some extra sales. Well, that's interesting. I remember when, uh, was, it the, was it SPC, the fruit uh, cannery, yep. were getting, getting into trouble, and then, uh, and then Woolies uh, stepped in and, and bought lots more of their product, and there was lots more on the shelves. Uh, so I understand that. Now, Gary, you, you have done some specific work that we'll come to in a moment, but just, David, um, I... When I think about what the government can do to try and support manufacturing, there is a there is this green program, green leasing, or what's what's that that green finance incentive? What what's that? Do you know what I'm talking uh, about? Well, uh, there are <laughs> um, through the uh, uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, there are some subsidised finance facilities which are available for efficient uh, assets. Um, primarily, they're uh, attached to motor vehicle finance, and if there's uh, and there's a subsidy that goes in there, which makes the the loan 0.7% cheaper if the motor vehicle is energy efficient. And almost all motor vehicles uh, that are new uh, fall into that category. Or you, but although you would be surprised that some purely electric vehicles actually don't. So there's a list of vehicles that do and don't, um, and the CFC. Uh, is um, it puts money in tranches into banks and financiers uh, to be lent in that way. I, I'm assuming that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that a mechanism that works? I mean, is that an effective mechanism and is that something that could be applied somehow to... It, to, to it, in reality, all it becomes is a price mechanism because the customer is, is ultimately unconcerned with uh, how the wholesale funding arrangements work um, and they still shop on the basis of price. So... Uh, it's it's a market advantage for some lenders to be able to offer that product or something similar to it, uh, and and, uh, and I'm aware of one lender who actually doesn't get its funding from the CEFC but does something off their own back um, in order to compete with it. Uh, but uh, it, it ultimately just comes down to a pricing advantage. And the the SME G two loans, uh, which have the government guarantee, have got a, an element of that in them as well. Right. Okay. All right. Now, Gary, we, 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 you, you showed us some work that you're doing uh, uh, that you've been you've been commissioned to look into this manufacturing sector uh, at a government level. Yeah. Uh, and we'll just show some workings that you've got there. So, do you just want to talk us through talk us through this? What 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 this is all about? Yeah. Sure. Well, the interesting as a starting point, I guess I should say the interesting point is the federal government seems to be far more interested in kickstarting manufacturing than the state government, which mm. I think think something that uh, also David mentioned. So the federal federal government is trying to figure out what to do. Uh, so what we're going to do is set up little hubs. The problem in the past is that there's been a lot of reports written about how to kickstart manufacturing. Most of them are, report, are basically reports. They, they talk about what happens overseas, they talk about what happens locally, but they don't actually tell you how to do it. Uh, the reason that the, they approached us was because they want a group of people who've actually done it all before and want to figure out how to actually get things moving. So what we'll be doing is looking at regions. Um, so the regions will be in Victoria and New South Wales. 
there'll be areas where there might be 30 or 40 manufacturers to start with and then what we'll be looking at ways that we can make them work together make them buy from each other and ultimately also make them look at transport make them look at outlets for sales for selling and that way hopefully we should be able to generate more employment people that are involved in our group also are one of the very largest i guess not-for-profit organizations they're funded by the government they do they help ndis so we'll be looking at what sort of people other people that we can put in which may have mental disabilities or people that have been long-term unemployed as to what we can do to help them work in some of these areas and that's one of the groups another group is that we've got the universities one of the universities in new south wales and one of the or two of the universities in victoria again looking at products that these guys have developed the universities have developed trying to steer them into products that will actually add value to the manufacturing businesses that we've got so that we know they, they can actually create extra value extra sales and we'll be getting them together there will be some government money available to help kickstart that as well in terms of commercialising products that they've developed. Right. And then we've done deals with retailers. So these are very large retailers, they're national retailers, and they're happy to put products on the shelf and to support Australian manufacturers. In one instance, I can't say who, but one of the, the large retailers has already helped us on a project we're doing at the moment for a, for a bank. So it's a manufacturer in Victoria and they've, probably added about 40% sales to this particular company, which has caused them to employ a lot more people and made them a lot more financially stable than what they were in the past. So the little trials that we're doing seem to be working. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and I noticed you've got so, – so did you say the bank was involved there? Yeah. So the banks the banks are very patient at the moment. Uh, a couple of the clients involved in this, in this process, needless to say, are in the workout area. Um, but the banks have been very supportive in the sense that they haven't demanded all the usual rules that they have in terms of uh, payback of core debt and so on. They've taken holidays on that. And also a couple of instances, they haven't asked for interest repayments either. So they've been prepared to capitalise the interest, particularly when we started uh, growing the businesses because we were short of cash. Right. So they have, they have been very helpful. It seems like that, that's generally the trend at the moment. But some are probably more helpful than others, but we can't say who. All right. Any any thoughts there, David, from your sort of uh, perspective as uh, as CAFPA or even uh, Cosboa? I think that's uh, that's true, and certainly at the senior levels of the bank, the intention is there to assist business and manufacturing as much as they possibly can. Uh, in the SME part of the market, where lending is a lot more commoditized, it's a lot harder to get the banks to. Um, uh, create a rule or to uh, 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 individualise uh, solutions for uh, for industries or for clients. But they certainly, I, I take your point that uh, they've been very, very good with capitalising uh, interest repayments and uh, with deferring loan repayments and there is a scheme to continue to do that without it having any impact on your credit score or your credit rating. Um, what worries me, one of the things that concerns me is that 12, 18 months, two years from now, uh, the banks will be looking back at this period of time and saying, well, hang on, you were in deferral at the time. What was the problem? Uh, notwithstanding that people will have traded their way uh, through and, uh, and things will have improved. Uh, so, but I actually have a question there for Gary, just to, uh, following on from one of the points that you've made. What about apprenticeships and the, uh, the government incentive there to, uh, to subsidise apprenticeships? Do you think that will have a dovetailing effect into the capacity to actually manufacture? Because I know that a lot of our clients in manufacturing are saying that they can't always uh, get people to do the jobs that they need. 
Yeah, no, it's a fair, fair call. Uh, certainly with apprenticeships, we're going to give it a try. Uh, we're involved with three manufacturing companies at the moment, so we're going to try and put some apprentices in. The, one of the groups that we're involved with, uh, one of their jobs is to place apprentices. They're, they're funded by the government, so we're, we're going to try with electrical apprentices particularly and fitters and turners. We'll yep. see what happens. Um, I guess uh, a, a couple of uh, we've got one of our one of our viewers asked the question. You know, are we going to sort of see more of the the buy Australian campaigns, and does that sort of thing work, or are we are we sort of a little bit more sophisticated than that? Yeah, look, what we it's a very interesting question actually. What we found with two manufacturers that we're working with at the moment is that when their sales were okay, then we put Australian made stickers on them, and their sales probably went up by about twenty five or thirty percent. Right now, oh. the sentiment. The sentiment in Australia seems to be, with retailers in particular or more expensive products, they will buy Australian. And if it's got a Made in China sticker, they'll, they're not interested no matter how cheap it is, it seems. Wow. That's, that's generally the sentiment we're seeing right now. How long that lasts for, I don't know, but that's the sentiment right now. 25%. Yeah, in both cases. That is impressive. Now, um, David, I'll ask you, uh, you know, back, back when we were lads, there was a thing called the Button Car Plan. Uh, we, you know, we won't go into the minutia of that, but they they did try to to sort of dictate to the the auto industry to consolidate the, the number of models, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and, and you know, we always hear about governments trying to pick winners. Um, do you think this new program they've narrowed it down to six industries? Is this a case of picking winners, or uh, is it a little bit more sophisticated than that? Or how, what are your thoughts on that generally? Oh no, I think that's um, that's probably the right plan. I mean, it's probably a very, very good starting point. Uh, and then, uh, you know, water finds its own course. I mean, there's, we have a lot of clients and, and our experience has been that uh, uh, manufacturers in one industry uh, will create work around for other industries that are sort of ancillary or that are around them. So uh, I think you've always got to have a starting point. And, uh, and if you can localise or identify where the, the best sort of routes are, to plant those uh, those seeds in the manufacturing sector, then I think that's a very very good strategy. So it certainly seems to work. Um, going back to your point, Nick, about you know the button car plan, and you know when you and I, you and I know each other for a long time, uh, when we were first in this business, uh, in terms of funding of equipment, um, there's still ton, tons of equipment that's being financed, uh, but there's very little of it which is Australian. There's very large, very few large manufacturing pieces of equipment that are Australian made, but people do tend to gravitate towards them because they know that they're good quality. Uh, and uh, particularly, and I'll take Gary's point about China, uh, the very, very few of our ch clients opt for Chinese equipment, especially for a second time. Uh, Gary, I just wonder, uh, actually, um, when, when it comes to the sort of strategizing that, that you've been doing and advising the government on, uh, there, there has been criticism of this uh, of the prime minister's plan, and I guess a little bit, a little bit of it is political, um, yeah. but suggesting that well, if you're encouraging manufacturing, all the heavy equipment, you know, the, the lathes and the machines and whatever it is, the manufacturing gear, uh, it, it's it all comes from overseas anyway. So all you're doing is sending the money overseas. I mean, do you buy into that, or is that just short-sighted? Uh, that's just short-sighted. Well, and, and can I ask, is it part of your plan to to actually manufacture the machines here? Well, that's, that's a two-edged sword. The first question, I guess, in terms of the manufacturing components, uh, one of the projects that we were involved with about two years ago was to get to have the trains locally manufactured. 
So in Victoria, about 70% or 72% of the components that go into the high-capacity trains and about 80%, I think, on the trams are all made locally. So you're right, some of the lathes and some of the equipment that was needed was imported, but the reality is at the end of the day that generated a hell of a lot of jobs in terms of people operating the machines. So the machine cost was very small. In terms of getting machinery done, we've done it a little bit differently. We're involved in quite a lot of high-tech medical products at the moment. So I guess that's equivalent to what you're talking about, machines, which will be made in Australia. Right. So, But in, term, in terms of the equipment that's made from overseas that's imported, they're made by people who've made it for a long, long time and have spent billions of dollars literally on R&D and to replicate that in Australia with small populations, not economic. Can I just say something there? I mean, if you import one piece of, of machinery uh, into Australia, the money goes overseas, but then that piece of equipment manufacturers a whole lot of widgets or whatever it is that it makes and, and is part of uh, the manufacturing process or part of the, uh, part of that whole uh, train of events, then um, the fact that the initial machine has come from overseas is not such a bad thing. It was producing assets here in Australia. And, David, you were, you were, uh, before we went live, you were saying that maybe one of the shortcomings of the instant asset write-off, uh, it, it, it biases against existing equipment? Yeah, the point I was making there is, and I'm very, very happy with the instant asset write-off and uh, uh, and with the uh, the fiscal policies that the government has adapted. I mean, there's very, very little that you can do with monetary policy when rates are 0.25%. But uh, tax treatment does drive behaviour. Now, we know, and you only need to look at last June, uh, there was a run-up and uh, a very... We were very, we were run off our feet. It's the only time of the year that we've been busy, but uh, we were run off our feet getting things settled before the end of June, so that people could get that uh, deduction into the current financial, into that financial year. Uh, now, with the extension of the instant asset write-off, um, there's no limit uh, to the value of equipment. It goes to 2022. There are some limitations in terms of size and turnover of business. But one of the things that, that has come out of it is that. Second-hand equipment up to $150,000 can only be deducted up to $150,000 up until the end of December of this year. And our point to that is that there's a lot of second-hand machinery, uh, which is already in Australia and available to be used here, that can pump out widgets and produce uh, components. Uh, now, you know, why devalue that equipment and disincentivise people to buy that in, in place of much more expensive new equipment, which comes largely from overseas. Right. So that's my only criticism of it. Right, yeah, and, and thereby sort of negating this concept of the money going offshore as well, I suppose. Mm. David, yeah. um, are, are there any sort of special challenges to financing uh, manufacturing equipment? I, I mean, I guess superficially and obviously it's a lot easier to get, you know, anything on wheels financed rather than something that sits on an on a industrial floor. Is that still the case? Well, I mean, I know that there's a lot of enthusiasm for the banking sector and that I think the ABA and the banks have done a great job, particularly uh, given the oversight that they've had from APRA and AFCA uh, and ASIC. Uh, and I'm, I'm delighted that those rules around responsible lending are going to loosen up a little bit uh, next year, but it, and it is next year. Uh, but the, it, it's still, the, the problem still exists that a lot of lending is commoditised and, uh, and that specific projects and... Um, individual circumstances are hard to fit into that sort of streamlined lending process. So that gives rise then to that second tier of lenders which have come into the market. And the one thing I would say to any prospective customers who are looking at, at buying new equipment, if their own bank can't hurt, and to uh, Tony's point very early on in the piece when he was recorded, 
Uh, you know, brokers in this market are very, very good at finding the solution where there's a whole lot of options out there, but not all of them will, will suit your circumstances. I've been in finance for a long time, and I reckon that, yep. uh, you know, I, I know a hell of a lot about finance, and uh, I certainly use a broker, for example, for my home loan. If you, if you get me to talk directly to a bank, you've got to be kidding. Uh, uh, what I'd say to customers there is that if your own bank can't assist you or if, um, if traditional sources of first-tier funding aren't available to you, and if you have to go to a second-tier lender or to a fintech or somebody else, and if perhaps you might be paying more, what's the cost of not acquiring that asset That's against right. that, that, that the cost of that extra, you know, two or three percentage points of interest that you might be paying? So, um, and that that I think is a very very important point. Um, you know, we're saying that interest rates are traditionally the lowest that they've ever been. The reality is that a lot of people aren't getting what they need at those types of rates, but they're still utilising finance facilities to get what it is that they need to put on their factory floor to increase their capacity, their capacity uh, to double their throughput. I tell you, one of the one of the you make good points. One of the interesting things that Tony Sykes said in passing, it wasn't sort of his key point, but was that because insurers are getting very low investment returns, it means that their you know their their underwriting has to be that much more profitable. And it's tightening up on the insurance that's available to manufacturers. And I wonder if that's an obstacle. I don't want to go down that path just at the moment because we are running out of time, Gary. When it comes to capital raising, I mean, are you are you seeing that capital raising is a particular challenge for the manufacturing sector in kickstarting it again? Uh, it depends if it's in uh, quite unquote a glamour industry. If it's in a glamour industry, which means, for example, there's one that we're involved with, they developed an X-ray machine, you walk into it and about 20 seconds later you've got a full X-ray of your lungs and all the rest of it, which doesn't exist up until now, so you can pick up COVID and all this. They raised $250 million basically on, on a prototype, which on the ASX, which is absolutely amazing. As there's other companies that we're involved with which make general widgets, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. They make money. They've made money for quite a few years. They're looking at expanding. They're having difficulty. So it seems to me that if it's a glamour industry, you've got no problem at all, If i.e. IT or medical. If it's just a regular run-of-the-mill type manufacturing business, it becomes difficult. That's that's what we're saying. Okay. Well, look, we are running out of time, so just uh, I'll just go to you for some closing thoughts. David, I'll go to you first. Yeah. Look, I think we're going to find our way out of this situation. The uh, the Victorian situation at the moment is not, uh, and I'd say to people in Victoria, um, it's not like this in the rest of the country. And um, and I know that you know we've got a lot of clients who are itching. For, uh, for the restrictions to ease. And as soon as that's available, we've got a lot of uh, pent-up demand and uh, and that demand will, will be realised. So uh, we've got a lot of facilities, finance facilities that we're putting in place at the moment. People are deferring, um, actually settling on those and taking delivery of assets. But as soon as they're able to, to get out there and actually manufacture and get back to a normal kind of working environment, um, I think the economy will go fairly well, fairly quickly. All right, well, hopefully we'll have a bit of a slingshot effect. Gary? Yeah, I agree with David. Uh, certainly what we're saying is exactly the same. We're also seeing, that very interestingly, quite a few manufacturers have approached us to help them set up in Australia. One is a very large pharmaceutical company. The reason for that is that they've got large facilities at the moment in China. It's a US mob. They want to pull out of China completely and they see Australia as a safe haven to make a lot of the product for the Asian market. So, again, I agree with that. Once we can start to move around, then I think you'll find that there'll be a, a kickstart in terms of getting other products made here, which will create employment. 
Well, that, that is interesting, Gary, because if they're moving, that, I know that uh, part of the US strategy is to, uh, to to shift the supply chain out of China, and I always thought they'll look to shift into Southeast Asia. But you're thinking no. that Australia might pick up some of that as well. Well, we've certainly been approached. Yeah, one of the, the same question as I asked the the guys in the US, and their view on life is that at the end of the day, Vietnam, which is the favourite place at the moment. Yep. The, they're concerned about the political stability and they're also concerned about the cost. They've worked out that even though the labour costs are low, the infrastructure at the moment is really bad in terms of electricity supply and roads and so on. So to get product to ports and so on is quite difficult. They prefer Australia where at least it's pretty pretty straightforward. And the other important point, I think, is that on average probably about 8% of your costs are labour costs. The rest is automation, equipment and so on. So if you're looking at an 8% direct labour cost or 7% direct labour cost, it really makes no difference to your price, but it's safer to make the product to you. Well, the other thing too is, I mean, some people might be thinking, oh, yeah, but, I mean, that's a US company coming to Australia and, you know, but the thing is, it's it, yes, it, it might be some great big plant that's American-owned, but they're still going to need locally made components. Maybe there'll be some packaging, local packaging. Of course, you know, the stuff needs to be moved around on the local trucks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Listen, Gary, well, you say like that... They employ a lot of people as well. So that's... Uh, you know, that's a, it. That's yeah. the game. That's, that's the game. Right. But, but they don't just employ people. They also employ a lot of subcontractors and, you know, right. people need to service that air condition and all the other little components that get manufactured. So, Gary, thank you very much for serving up that little uh, gold nugget <laughs> right, right at the end, because that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting uh, line of thought. And thank you for introducing it. Thank you very much, um, uh, David Gandolfo and Gary Tesher, for joining us on Lunch Money. Really appreciate your input. Pleasure always. Thanks very much, and, Nick. Uh, Thanks very, very much, much Nick. to uh, our our viewers and listeners. And I look forward to doing it all again next week. Cheers.